what AI is in in medicine, but really particularly in food allergies. What is the kind of the success rate of, of this? Our success rate is uh, absolutely fantastic. We're at a 99% success rate, and we've been at that number for many, many years. Uh, remember, it's hard to keep 99% when you have you know, roughly about 100 to 150 to 200 new patients starting every month. It's kind of your insights into kind of the blood testing and how accurate that is for allergies. With every iteration, it's gotten a little bit better, but there's still not a single test, not one particular test that could actually answer that question. And that's where I leaned on AI to see if it, it could actually answer that. Hello and welcome to Make and Tain, the podcast Breaking the Sigma. The podcast started off breaking the sigma surrounding my food allergy. However, this year, I want to use this platform to break the sigma of other conditions or topics which are not always well understood. And it's a safe space where the guests open up about their own personal stories and struggles on the way in hopes that their stories will inspire you. If you can do me one massive favor whilst listening to the podcast, make sure to click that follow button. Honestly, it means the world to me. And if you're watching this on YouTube, the episode is out every Wednesday so make sure to click that subscribe button honestly appreciate all the support let's jump into the podcast Dr. Rand Howard absolute pleasure to get you on the podcast I think it's, it's such an exciting episode I've had obviously doctors and professors on the podcast before but your work within kind of AI and food allergies is such an exciting space and you could say a new space as well so absolute pleasure to get you on today how are you doing I'm doing great uh, Daniel thanks for having me um, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about what AI is in in medicine but really particularly in food allergies so I'm looking forward to the conversation yeah and with with the guests I always find it quite interesting to kind of go back maybe to them kind of early years obviously how you kind of like obviously became a doctor, then maybe later on, obviously your relationship with um, food allergies. Totally. Um, you know, I, I don't have the typical story, I guess. Uh, you know, my dad uh, was a veterinarian and animal doctor, uh, but he had a PhD research background. So he came from India to the States uh, about 50, 50 plus years ago at that stage. And so I grew up, you know, kind of learning what science looked like through the lens of, of a clinician, you know, think of it, like, you know, if you're taking care of an animal, uh, that he would look at it very differently. And I saw that growing up and I got to say that had a huge influence on how I look at things as a doctor. And so I've always had that interest, but specific to food allergies, honestly, um, I, I have to say I had no exposure or experience with it as a kid. Um, certainly I saw, you know, some kids in school who had it, but that was pretty uncommon or at least certainly was not talked about. And I really was not introduced to it until I was in my later training as a physician and, you know, working in the hospital setting in the ICU. That's when I had the, the really the greatest direct face to face with food allergies. And it absolutely floored me. I just really did not see that part of uh, the condition. Um, and that's certainly where my interest started. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I don't think many people knew, obviously, even when I got diagnosed with an allergy in the 90s, it wasn't very kind of commonly like people didn't know about the cirrhosis i think they did and they didn't like you obviously like now you, it's constantly in the media obviously the public are now more kind of like educated i mean when you was on that pathway where you was in the icu did you know what was your kind of first say obviously it wasn't food allergies was it did you did you kind of work in a few different departments until you kind of found out that kind of passion and that, and that love yeah absolutely so i i went into medicine um really not sure where i wanted to land so I worked in the ICU, I worked as a lung uh, specialist, and then I really got interested in the world of transplant. So, you know, this is transplants of organs like liver, uh, bone marrow transplants, and lungs particularly. 
So I, I found it really interesting because in many ways I was, I wanted to be the last guy that people saw in, in some ways, you know, if, if, when they come to you, that's it. They're looking for you to find a solution. And I found it really interesting on how in a single transplant, just for one single patient, we would invest incredible amount of time, hours, and people, but more particularly invested an entire amount of data. Like we would collect so much information on one person to make sure the organ matches well with the recipient. And then we, you know, we that, that's kind of how we did it. And even to this day, it's exactly how we do it. And then I realized we don't do that for any other disease. Like we don't invest that much time or effort in data. We just kind of use the art of medicine. And I really found that interesting. And then, of course, when I first saw food allergies in the ICU in the hospital setting, that's where it started. I said, well, hold on a second. Maybe we should be applying this approach to food allergies. Yeah, like even like, I know like 10 years ago, there wasn't really kind of a register for people going into the hospital because of anaphylaxis. And this is like within the UK. I mean, kind of like within the US, was there any kind of much research or data surrounding food allergies during that time? You know, Daniel, unfortunately, even to this day, we don't have that data. Um, you know, at least with NHS, you have an opportunity to collect it, which is really useful. But here to this day, we have very limited data. We do know a lot of patients end up in the ER, in the hospitals, in the ICUs, and we have a, a some information towards fatal events. But unfortunately, uh, because we have this kind of disconnected healthcare system, we don't even have that information, sadly. Yeah. Would you say within kind of, when you kind of mentioned there with the transplants and obviously the data, would you say that was your first kind of like glimpse into like you see like within food allergies, they didn't have that or kind of other conditions. I mean, that kind of like stems on quite nicely into kind of the data and research into AI as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, when I, I could, I could tell you a specific story, um, you know, when I was in a, a very large children's hospital and we had these patients come in, um, I remember pulling up their information, their data. And I said, this patient who has a peanut allergy, their values, their blood values for peanut were very low. They were less than one, like, you know, 0.9. And that patient was extremely ill. I mean, on a ventilator, extremely ill from a peanut exposure and down the hall in the next ice, it was a very large hospital, large ICU. Down the hall was another child who ate same amount of peanuts. Their peanut numbers were about 90. And that patient was relatively fine on a little bit of oxygen. It was you know, likely going to go home later that day. So I immediately saw this discrepancy that somehow the values that are present, these numbers that we you know, test people with, are not really reflective of the disease. And that's kind of where it all began. Yeah. When you mentioned there, like, obviously, the values, obviously, you know, like within kind of like the blood tests, obviously, that gives you a bit of an indication. I mean, how accurate is that? Because I know it's also a bit like bad practice in terms of like if you do a blood test and you send and you send it off through like a third party, it's always great, obviously, to kind of do it for your doctor so you get a full kind of free system. But what's kind of your insights into kind of the blood testing and how accurate that is for allergies? You know, I, I think maybe before I answer that question, I'd even take a step back and say, look at all of medicine, look at all kinds of diseases, strokes, heart attacks and such. Is there a single test that predicts the disease well? And the answer is not, no, no single test is going to say, hey, here's, here's the disease outside of something like a biopsy, something really invasive, right? So in the world of food allergy, we've had such a slow development of testing. I mean, I don't tell you the whole story, but you're going back 60, 80 years with skin testing. You're looking at the late 70s with blood testing, some improvements in the 90s. 
But when I first got into the space, I was really interested in improving the testing data themselves, the types of tests. Can we get better? Um, and with every iteration, it's gotten a little bit better, but there's still not a single test, not one particular test that could actually answer that question. And that's where I leaned on AI to see if it, it could actually answer that question. Why is that? Is it, is it down to budget? I know, I, know, I know it's a big issue, obviously, kind of within the UK. Um, there's not many kind of many hospitals which specializes not only in food allergies, but also kind of the mental implications of that as well. Is that, is that the same in the US? It's definitely the same. I also think that food allergies here are, are something that I call like an orphan condition, right? It's, it's something that nobody really wants to own. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly not your prototypical allergist. I mean, I, I have a lot of other specialties, um, but I found that the classical allergy world was not very enthusiastic to deal with this condition. It seemed very complex and risky. Um, you know, the other specialty that would technically deal with the food allergy would be a, a gastroenterologist or a, a GI doctor. They certainly don't want to deal with these cases. So I found that there's really almost a lack of interest um, in trying to solve this problem. And, and certainly when I started almost 20 years ago, that's what I saw. Yeah. And what was your kind of first, when you kind of walked back, your first kind of um, time you kind of come across AI and um, kind of thought like, well, this could potentially kind of work within the healthcare space. Do you remember that first kind of experience with that? Yeah, um, I would say it happened a couple times. One was actually not in the field of food allergy. I was doing work in another lung disease, um, a lung disease that uh, affects people with something called sickle cell, which is a, a blood-based disease. And I started pulling all kinds of data uh, from the lungs of these patients. And I started looking at patterns. You know, AI is all about pattern recognition. And I was able to see patterns and we started utilizing that to actually build a forecasting type of diagnosis and treatment. Now, it was very small back then. I'm talking about 180 patients, things of that nature. But to this day, that work continues. That's how good it has been for that one condition. And I started realizing that if we can collect enough data, if we can collect enough information, we can then start to look at patterns. But you must collect the same information on every single patient. And that's the only way you can study the immune system of individuals, and indeed, especially in food allergies, the proteins that they're actually eating, the proteins like peanuts that cause the problem. We need to study those as much as we study the immune systems themselves. With AI, I mean, how much do you rely on it? Because obviously, is, is, there, is there any mistakes? Or obviously, there's always human errors, but how much do you kind of rely on kind of AI and also your, your own kind of intuitions as well? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll even kind of take that back a few years. Um, you know, by 2008, when I started my food allergy work, uh, the first thing I do, and as anybody has to do in AI or really any sort of software space, is you have to build data sets. So we built our first data sets by 2008, and that meant we took the blood of hundreds of patients who have food allergies and started analyzing that data and built a data set. We also started studying peanuts, cashews, pistachios, a slew of different proteins in the laboratory and we built data sets there as well. So now I have these two very large data sets. Those two large data sets at that time, remember this is a long time ago before yeah. chat GBT and such, yeah. uh, we actually then started using machine learning to see what patterns existed between these two things. Back then, I would say the machine learning system was still roughly about 80 to 90% accurate. So right away I knew I was onto something, that we could actually make a diagnosis using a machine learning AI type mm -hmm. system but I didn't have enough data. I didn't have enough patients. 
And that's really where I started to say, hey, we need to get this into a model and we need to start bringing patients into the system. And now 15,000 patients later, you know, we have an immensely robust system that is treating patients from all around the world. I was going to ask why, what, what kind of the perspective from kind of the healthcare or people looking in, what are their thoughts on AI? Is he a bit of kind of skeptical? Is this right or is it actually going to help? I mean, it'd be great to kind of get your thoughts on that. You know, it's a great question. I'd say eight or nine years ago, uh, there was a lot of skepticism. I mean, they, were, they, they didn't understand the concept. Uh, even my physician colleagues that I trained and I hired uh, were very skeptical. They said, yeah, you know, we, we're not taught this in, in medical training. Mm. Uh, so how come you're using uh, these, these systems that operate in many ways more efficiently and maybe even better with accuracy than the human operator? And that was that many years ago. I think in the last two to three years, there's been a much greater acceptance, which I appreciate, because we're seeing AI now deployed in a few other spaces. Uh, there's a great uh, a story behind a system called Watson, which was designed by IBM. And, you know, it, it's done a lot of great things in trying to establish itself in healthcare. It also eventually did not work well in healthcare. But from those types of examples, I think people have learned and said, you know, hey, let's give this a try because clearly this is working in many other sectors of the economy. Why not try it in healthcare? Yeah. So obviously with obviously the, the food institution, obviously, which you, you set up, was it over, is it 15 years ago now? It's, it's yeah. almost 18 years of work. Uh, our, our actual institute yeah. went live in 2015. Yeah, I mean... That must have been quite revolutionary, obviously, back back then. I mean, how many patients have you seen now? You mentioned over 15,000. Yeah, 15,000. We're the largest uh, globally, uh, any kind of group of food allergy patients, uh, we're on the map. And, and again, we've been doing this consecutively, consistently since basically 2005. Yeah. What's your experience? I thought it'd be great, obviously, while you're on the podcast, obviously, we'll, we'll kind of talk about TIP and, and obviously the treatment you're doing there and how effective it is. But before we kind of jump into that, it'd be kind of interesting to hear kind of your perspective with, obviously, kids is in regards to kind of allergy anxiety, something which for me has been on the rise. I've always kind of put it down to like the media. It's more at the forefront now. When I had an allergy when I was a kid, it wasn't really spoke about in the news, so you didn't really hear about these algae deaths and if you did it was probably it's the local newspaper it's not it's not something that you kind of see all of the news now what's your kind of thoughts with kind of parents have you kind of seen a lot of algae anxiety within kind of the parents and the child yeah you're absolutely right um you know as somebody who deals with chronic illness you know i mean i have many patients of all different disease states and when you're dealing with a chronic disease it is it is anxiety provoking for anybody who's dealing with and when I first started dealing with food anaphylaxis and food allergies, I didn't understand what that meant for my patients. And I'll tell you just a quick story. I mean, I remember, uh, this is going back to 2007 or so, where I had a patient who was uh, a, an American football player who was, you know, in, in high school. And, you know, we worked very hard on his case. He had peanut and several tree nut allergies. And we finished everything and he was in remission from our program. I remember talking to him and saying, I was showing him his data. I mean, literally, I was showing it to him on a piece of paper and demonstrating how all this improvement was and wonderful. And all he talked about was, was how this has improved his mental health, you know, his state of anxiety. He also had depression. He was previously on medications. And it was interesting because I was fully focused on safety. 
I said, look, imagine an entire life where you don't have to worry about this condition anymore. But all he talked about was his frame of mind. And I think that was one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had. And to this day, we have actually tried to focus on mental health with our patients. And it has been extremely difficult. I got to be just very direct about it. We've treated hundreds of physicians' children in our program. We've treated hundreds of psychologists' children in our program. And I have gone to them individually and in groups, and I've asked them, what can we do to better assess? I mean, forget about treatment of food allergies, but just the food allergy population as a whole. How can we address this condition better? And the honest answer I've received is we don't know because no one is really studying this condition. And to me, this is not an eating disorder, right? This is something very different. Uh, this is a regular awareness that you can have a reaction and even the best of security and systems that may exist, you can still have a reaction. And what that does to your social interactions and how you can actually develop relationships becomes very, very difficult. So I completely agree with your point. And in fact, it's an area we are trying to study right now, but frankly, we're at the earliest phases. Of it. Yeah, it's, it's so important. Even myself, I think it wasn't until like maybe five, six years ago, it, it started to kind of really affect me. And I think it's because maybe I was doing it's when I started May Contain, obviously the blog now, which I have to empower people with food allergies. And I was creating this allergy content all the time and it was doing really well. But I think the the kind of the flip of the coin to that was my anxiety was was getting worse. So it, it's been uh -huh. hard to tr trying to find that balance. And I think like I think like within the UK as well, like from speaking with like professors as well, there's just not enough kind of trained um kind of psychologists which specializes within that space and if i was talking from my own personal experience like i've recently got a a, a therapist to help me with my food allergy and anxiety um and it's funny when i reached out to my private healthcare, and I, i'm really lucky to have it i got it through work and um they put me in touch with people with like food disorders and i was like no no it's 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 not that and it, it's just obviously like like kind of lack of kind of training and awareness but um, I was really lucky that her daughters happened to have food allergies. I didn't know this. I love that. this therapist. And um, yeah, it's been really interesting to kind of that kind of chain of thought in the mind. So she kind of mentioned to me, and this might be helpful for the listeners as well, is like you've got you've kind of got the that fear and the threat of obviously having an allergic reaction, but okay. you've also got the fats as well. And the fats could be, look, I've told them, I've made them aware, they've seen the allergy card, I've spoken to the chef, and they're all the fats. But sometimes my kind of chain of thought is like you go to the fear. So, no, it is. I think it is such an important part of allergies, which I don't necessarily feel like is spoke about enough in some ways. I uh, you know, I will say, I think, you know, the UK is, is far more advanced uh, than the States. Um, I was in London last year and I'm always impressed by the, you know, uh, the awareness that's there by restaurants, food industry. Um, it's, it's definitely talked about. And I think that's important, right? You have to talk about it first. Uh, in order to have any kind of impact. Um, and, and here in the States, I think we just have a long way to go. Yeah, no, it's so, so interesting when you kind of hear like the, the kind of difference between the UK and um, the US and um, obviously the US is a lot bigger and <laughs> so in different places. But um, I was going to ask you, what's your thoughts on the auto-injector? Is it obviously something for me, I feel like within obviously the last 10, 15 years, it's not really adapt or it's not really changed. And you could obviously say like the EpiPen has kind of monopolized the market in, in, in some ways. 
Are you surprised that not much kind of research or kind of budget has gone into that to make it smaller? It's a great question. So EpiPen came out, or what was the first version of EpiPen back in the 1970s? Um, and, you know, if you, I mean, you certainly understand this better than, than, than folks who don't have food allergies. But if you're carrying around this heavy object that's spring-loaded, and you are now in a situation where you have to use it, and you maybe haven't used one for a few years, number one, right? So practice is, is part of the issue. And now all of a sudden you have to place this thing at your in your thigh and let the spring-loading injection move and, and, and deliver the actual result. I can tell you that, you know, this old archaic EpiPen um, is, is not suited for 2023. I mean, it's not fair to ask people to carry this thing around. Most of them are absolutely frightened to use it. We have such a large number of patients and we survey our parents and certainly over two thirds of our parents will say that they are very uncomfortable administering an EpiPen. And that, I mean, imagine that's a parent, yeah. right? I mean, they don't even have to necessarily deal with the condition. So I agree with you. I think there has to be something better. But um, when I first was in this space back in 2005, I actually tried to design a better EpiPen. I tried to design an actual product. I built a prototype where it was not only an EpiPen, but it actually injected two additional drugs at the same time. And I designed it in a way that would it would essentially strap onto the leg and be um, a, 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 think of it as a motion-based countdown. Okay. And I, I thought it was going to work. I thought it was a good idea. And it certainly did work. I mean, we did several uh, small trials with this and it would stop a reaction very effectively, but it was large, you know, somewhat un, un difficult to carry around with. Yeah. And what I tell folks is no matter how good you are at using an EpiPen, it is about when you use the EpiPen and your ability to recognize that you are at a, at a risk position. And ultimately I think that's the problem, right? Like, you know, you can carry an EpiPen, hopefully you know how to use it, but if you don't use it at exactly the right time, and perhaps maybe you need to use more than one, that's where, that's where this condition becomes really difficult. So, you know, I, it was at that time that I eventually decided maybe I should be focusing on treatment rather than just a, a rescue administration. Now, that's really interesting. You mentioned the, the additional drugs. What was that alongside the adrenaline? Yeah. So one of them was an injectable steroid that was fast acting. And uh, just like many other things, it could actually inject into the local muscle site. And the other one was an antihistamine. It was actually a combination of antihistamines that had great effect into the muscle. I even had a name for it. It was called Trijet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, again, I gave it a fair shot, but ultimately yeah. I, I was unable to get it to the finish line. Yeah. It's interesting. You kind of, you mentioned there, obviously, like, obviously the device and kind of the size of it as well. And, um, I always get asked all the time, like, where do I carry it? And I'm like, no, I'll just carry it in my pants. But like you say, when you're on nights out or you're having drinks with the guys, like there's only so much you can fit in your pocket apart from your phone and your wallet and two EpiPens. I'll, I'll say that yeah. EpiPen, remember, there's a couple of new, new, new devices that are trying to get on the market. Um, one of them is like a nasal spray. Um, I'm not sure how much of that's been talked about, but uh, it, it tried to get FDA approval here in the U.S. a few months back, um, and it did not get approval yet. Um, which I think is, you know why that is? I mean, you know, we have a pretty rigorous, uh, approval process in the federal government. Um, and you know, I think it's a great concept. I mean, I, I like the concept a lot. Um, and in fact, as an ICU doctor, we use epi, you know, epinephrine in different ways. We don't necessarily put it in their thigh. You can actually use epinephrine 
You can inhale it. You can breathe it in very effectively. Uh, it can be deposited in the skin a different way. It doesn't have to be this kind of deep injection. Yeah. So there's plenty of ways to get adrenaline into the system. Uh, I think what this particular organism, this company did that was not that best is they needed to test it on adults with actual food allergies. Uh, they didn't, yeah. you know, I know it's difficult to hear, but literally you have to yeah. test it on people who have anaphylaxis. And yeah. since they did not do that, the FDA was really resistant to just go ahead and approve it. You mentioned earlier about obviously like the parents, obviously two-third, they've been like obviously that kind of hesitance to kind of use the EpiPen. Do you find within kind of, within obviously kind of your research, are people using the EpiPen enough or they're not, or they're not using it at all in these kind of circumstances? It's, it's very sad, Daniel. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, uh, we, we survey our own patients, uh, you know, before they start the program and two thirds, again, of the parents say they're not comfortable. Uh, when they're even in our program, about 5% of them, and we're a pretty rigorous program. We're watching and, and keeping track and we're doing it with technology and 5% of our patients will not carry their EpiPen with them. I mean, which I find amazing, you know, like yeah. you know, you're in active treatment and you don't want to carry it. We appreciate your confidence in us, but that's not a, you know, the way to do it. Um, and then ultimately we also surveyed schools. Um, so elementary schools, and we were absolutely surprised that, you know, at, there's at least one kid with food allergies in every classroom in general. And that means there's an EpiPen sitting either at the teacher's desk or at the nurse's office. And we were absolutely shocked to find that the teachers themselves had almost zero knowledge and zero training on how to administer EpiPen. So if there is a reaction at school, they're not prepared to deal with it. And this is in the United States. You know, I mean, I was very surprised. So we are actually moving towards trying to change that because I think we need to advocate for this globally, frankly. I mean, this is something that everyone should be talking about. Uh, forget about the restaurants for a second. Just focus on schools and let's let's make sure schools are as safe as possible for kids. Yeah, because you find that a lot of them sometimes administer kind of into the thumb. Um and there's a guy called Zach Marks. I don't know if you've heard of him, but um, he's done like, um, it's like defibrillator, but for allergies. So obviously it contains EpiPens. And um, I think he's got it in over like 200 schools now. Um, so yeah, it's incredible, obviously, the work he's doing. Um, and obviously with that, with like the workshops and the training. And I think it was last year, like every year, I try and do um, like a video on my Instagram and there's a few of us. Um, and it gets like hundreds of thousands of people views like in terms of people like getting involved showing how to use the EpiPen and like there's such a kind of a lack of like awareness there yeah in regards to that kind of timing I think it's so important you mentioned that as well in terms of how many symptoms should you look out for until you use the EpiPen because I used it once I had a bit of an itchy throat but I thought it was anaphylaxis looking back it could have been a panic attack do you think you should look out for more than one symptom before you do use the EpiPen? Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question. And I, you know, what I tell all of our patients is if you feel you're having a reaction um, and it's and it's significant for you, um, because one thing I do know is that all patients, their perception of their symptoms is different, um, you know, especially based on age. You know, if you're four or five years old, 20 years old, or even an adult, your perception of symptoms is going to be different. And the perception is really based on which organs involved and kind of the size of that organ. So like a quick example is the airway, which is the most critical thing of a very young child, 
uh, if they're complaining of symptoms, uh, you know, obviously that airway is very small. So we want to make sure they get epi right away and, and keep that airway nice and open. If you're an adult, you have a much larger airway, about two and a half times the size of a child's airway. And so you have a little more give to try to, you know, kind of make a decision. Mm-hmm. But no matter what, if you feel that within the first three to five minutes of you starting to feel symptoms, if three to five minutes have gone by and you're not feeling really stable or better, you should just go ahead and use the EpiPen. There's no reason to delay. Um, it's really, really important. I, I always feel that the mistakes that occur are when individuals are downplaying their symptoms for past three to five minutes. Yeah, that's so interesting because, um, yeah, it's always really scary, you know, when you're trying to work out, is it kind of, is it just high? Is it, is it a mild reaction and trying to work out kind of, that difference and to be honest when i use that i honestly thought my neck was well so the thing that the interesting thing with that was when they did all the blood tests and they did the heart monitor everything was okay so i don't think if it was i mean it would be great to get your thoughts on this if it was anaphylaxis then maybe the symptoms i wouldn't make blood levels would it wouldn't have been as normal as there was maybe that's <laughs> um, true right i mean yeah yeah absolutely i mean i, I you know there's the condition, which is, you know, uh, peanut allergy. And what your anaphylactic reaction is depends on many factors. I'll just give you like a couple examples. If you were just exercising, right? I mean, you're at the gym and your heart rate was at 125 beats per minute. And then you were just cooling down and you happened to eat something that was contaminated and that had peanut in it. Your chance of having symptoms there is much higher because your heart rate is higher and that's going to start circulating the allergic response faster, right? So oh, okay. ultimately, if you are feeling symptoms in that setting, you probably want to respond a bit more aggressively. Hmm. At the same time, if you are absolutely, you know, heart rates at 60 beats per minute, you're resting and so forth, it might take you much more time to develop symptoms. And indeed, those symptoms may even start to resolve within a matter of minutes because the circulation of the allergic response is really everything, right? As soon as that yeah. circulated allergic response is under control, you're good to go. You don't have to worry about it. But the question is, when do you need to deploy that epi? And so that's the gray zone that, that everyone's yeah. kind of stuck with. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of find that. I mean, it'd be interesting to kind of hear about, obviously, the treatment you do now at the Food Allergy Kind of Institute and how the work you're doing is different from kind of these other kind of allergy tests um, around the, the U.S.? Yeah. Well, again, you know, our program, it's called TIP, uh, which is the tolerance induction program, is the, it's it's one of a kind. Uh, this kind of program, again, has been built now for almost two decades, and it's purely based on data science on one side. So our number one goal is to give people a proper diagnosis. Um, you know, we have patients who come here from all over the world. Uh, we have probably about 300 plus from the U.K. Uh, who are actively in treatment. And when they come in, we'll run their blood. And, and it's not a, a massive amount of blood, but it's a, you know, it's a moderate amount. And we're with that blood, we are able to then test and then feed into an AI system. And with that, we can tell them what they're anaphylactic to and how their immune system sees other similar proteins. And so the first step is to say, hey, look, here's what you're anaphylactic to. And you'd be amazed. Uh, we have patients come in and they have, they have never eaten shellfish. And we're able to tell that they're anaphylactic to shellfish without them ever knowing that they were at risk. And we can do the same for seeds and other types of uh, tree nuts, grains, things of that nature. And once a patient is then set up uh, with their diagnosis, we then utilize that AI data to actually treat them. And the tolerance induction program 
induces tolerance. So at the end of treatment, uh, if you're anaphylactic to peanuts, you're consuming peanuts openly without restriction. So you're essentially eating them like a non-allergic person. Mm. And in that, your immune system continues to go into remission deeper and deeper over years of time. So to many people, that seems like a curative state. Um, it, yeah, I can understand that because it certainly seemed like a curative state. But for us um, on the scientific side, you know, we call that remission. Uh, so ultimately, it's a great diagnosis tool. It's a great treatment tool. And the fact that we're able to treat the patients at a distance. I mean, you know, they're not coming here, uh, you know, but 12 to 14 weeks at a time for the UK as an example. And in that time, we're treating multiple foods simultaneously. Uh, that is our model that we've been using now for two decades. I mean, I was going to ask that from kind of like start to finish. I mean, how long would it take until they can have that, say they're allergic to peanuts from um, doing the tolerance until they can have one peanut? Is that yeah. over weeks or months? So what we do is we look at peanut, almost going back to our discussion about transplants, right? So we take peanut and we break it down into 17 proteins. So we actually measure those proteins, those little sequences, and then we match those proteins against other biosimilars. So think of it as proteins that are related to peanut. So that might be almond, it might be hazelnut, or other specific proteins. So what we're doing is actually having an individual treat specific proteins like hazelnut and almond at, at very organized vectors or very organized mathematical points. And we actually give that to the patients in a gummy, in a, in a gelatin. And so we are manufacturing facility here will produce that individually for every patient. So they start the program and in roughly about six months, we've taken their peanut value. So let's say their peanut value was 75 or 80 points. We're now reducing that number down to 30 or even 25 without ever eating a single peanut. And once wow. we've accomplished that induction by cross-matching the immune system properly, we do start peanut relatively quickly and relatively fast. They're usually eating a peanut in about three months, and then they're consuming the end point, which is, again, a 75 peanut challenge, which I know sounds like a <laughs> incredibly yeah, large yeah. amount of peanuts, and it is. Uh, they're doing a 75 peanut challenge roughly uh, within, within a year after they start that first peanut. Yeah, I mean, that must be crazy, kind of the, the, the difference there. And what is the kind of the success rate of, of this? Our success rate is uh, absolutely fantastic. We're at a 99% success rate, and we've been at that number for many, many years. Uh, remember, it's hard to keep 99% when you have, you know, roughly about 100 to 150 to 200 new patients starting every month. So we're continuing to grow. Um, and the reason why we're so successful, uh, in my opinion, is our AI. It's our technology side of things, right? We're able to test very accurately, use the analytics really, really well. We're able to track those patients. They're able to get these little gummies on an on a organized basis. So the room for error is very small, and we can kind of then predict. So in, indeed, our patients come in, and we will predict for them in how much time they will be finished with all food proteins. So literally, we can predict when they'll hit remission within about a 75-day window period in the future, uh, which is amazing, right? Imagine yeah, having yeah. any other medical condition and saying, hey, in you know two years' time, you will be in remission of your disease. Yeah. Uh, but that's what AI, AI can help you do. And you mentioned that people from the UK are actually traveling all the way over to the US. I mean, how yeah. many visits do they have to come and see you if they're traveling from the UK, just out of interest? Yeah, I still remember my first patient with the UK. This is going back to 2012, right? So all, over a decade ago. 
And I remember when they showed up and I said, well, how did you even find us? I mean, like we, we don't advertise what we're doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, she knew somebody, um, and her son had a peanut and egg allergy. Uh, those, just those two. Um, and she had to come back for roughly six, sorry, roughly seven visits. And to this day, he's in remission doing extremely well. And, uh, that's one example. I'd say most of our patients are coming back roughly four times a year and it's roughly about two years long. That's a fair, fair number. Yeah. And then after the treatment, once they go into remission, do they still have to eat a little bit every week to kind of make sure they don't kind of go back to being anaphylaxis? Absolutely. Uh, so our goal is to have what we call seven days of, of sustained unresponsiveness or essentially seven days where you're eating this very large amount of peanuts or any other allergen. And then seven days later, you eat this, this large amount again. And in between, you can eat nothing. You don't have to eat any of it or you can consume any amount. There's no restrictions. And so for the first year out of remission, year one after their delicate treatment, uh, we do ask the patients to do this on a weekly basis. And to be fair, it's not an overwhelming amount of food proteins, right? It's a limited amount. Um, but by year two and year three, we're often able to draw those food proteins down to two-week, three-week, and four-week cycles. So okay. by the time someone's three years in remission, they're often eating this amount of food protein on a monthly basis. It becomes very manageable. How dangerous is it if they forget? I mean, is, is, is there, say, one week I forget, how do you kind of then work it out the following week? The beauty of, of, of everything we do is it's based on data, right? So we're constantly collecting data on the patients. So when we start the program, we're doing this large blood draw and analytics, and then we do the same analytics every year. So we know that their immune system is, is driving deeper and deeper into remission. So the, the beautiful thing is, if you look at our patients who are two years into remission, they're, you know, to be frank, not really following the plan. You know, they're missing, they're, they're on average missing doses about 30 to 40% of the time. Yet we don't hear from them. They're doing well, they're clinically well. Mm. And we have technology, so the technology kind of monitors and assists them and reminds them and so forth, right? But ultimately, what they're doing is they're consuming the food like a not allergic person, right? So they go to restaurants and they order, you know, peanut products without an issue. They don't even think about it anymore. And I believe that's what ultimately keeps them in this deep state of remission is that they are consuming these foods like a non-allergic person, which means large, irregular amounts of protein that are going on an ongoing yeah. basis. You mentioned there, obviously, kind of building up that, obviously, that tolerance where they can eat peanuts. Is there a point where, say, they're, say, abroad and they get an ice cream and it's got nuts on? Is it like, like a like a kind of a tolerance where there's too much nuts on this product and this could cause a reaction um, just out of interest? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you look at why we challenge somebody to 75 peanuts, right? I mean, that's, that's literally a large cup and no one, you know, so we do this because every challenge amount, so if it was tree nuts, you know, we're hitting these 22 gram, very large amounts of these challenges because essentially we want to make sure that when they leave our system, that there's no amount of peanut or any other allergen that they cannot consume. And I'm very proud of that. I mean, we've done this with fish, shellfish, uh, you name it as far as primary allergens. And our success rate has been the same for all of them. Uh, the greatest difficulty, frankly, is with wheat, uh, wheat bread, uh, wheat and grains um, are tricky uh, because they have the most number of those matched sequences that we have to have. They, are, they surpass peanut. Um, and that's been the one that we will sometimes modify and say, you know what, 
you probably cannot eat this on a weekly basis. You may have to eat it more frequently. But to be honest, you know, it's not that difficult to eat some pasta or things of that nature. So th- that's not, not, not too big a deal. So then, obviously, the treatment, is it aimed at just children or is it aimed at teenagers? I'm 31 next week. Could I come to the treatment and could you, could you actually cure my neurology? Because I know a lot of these treatments are always aimed at, obviously, teenagers and not really kind of like um, adults. Like. Yeah. Uh, well, first, happy birthday in advance. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, our, our, you know, I started with kids. Um, I started with young kids. Uh, five years to 10 years was my first group, you know, almost two decades ago. And I did that because, you know, in so many ways, that's what I saw in the hospital. You know, I mean, I, I just kind of felt like, you know, that's where I should target things. Um, but in the, in the last 15 years, uh, we started expanding it to teenagers. And now we take up to age 30. But frankly, you know, we're, we're becoming more flexible because we know that we have the data of the immune systems of people in their 20s and now even people in their 30s. So I've been doing this so long that I have patients who are now in their 30s. They have their own children. Right. So we're, we're getting to the point where we want to expand this to a, not only young adults, but even middle aged adults would be our next phase. Um, and, and I just say one last thing. I mean, it's it's really important that that there's a difference between what is kind of other forms of, of immunotherapy or OIT, because what what is out there, again, is limited. And what they, it allows you to do is eat a very minimum amount of peanut for a safety level. But then you have to eat that minimum amount of peanut every day for the rest of your life. You can never actually consume foods openly and easily. Our system and our goal is totally different. We want our patients to actually not worry about food allergies ever again. They have to, we want them to consume and eat like a not allergic person. And that's open without restriction. Uh, They can live their life. And the greatest benefit is this is a lifelong treatment, right? The work you do now benefits you decades and decades from now. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen like the OI, uh, the OIT kind of treatment um, on TikTok, and that's I mean, they're picking up millions of views. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you in regards to then with adults, if they do this treatment, is there kind of a bigger risk you could say in some ways in comparison to treating a, ch- a child? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, I, w- I would say I'm gonna answer it two different ways. Um, okay, remember about about two-thirds of our patients will go start to finish, that means start to finish, without ever having a single symptom, which is remarkable. And it's a very good rate of non-events, nothing happening, you're good. In our adult patients or older patients, that number is often higher. Like they'll actually not have symptoms at all. Of those who have symptoms, the other one-third, it's usually very mild. It's like one time, you know, oral itch, you know, a hive maybe, and our system has 24-7 on-call support. So we literally have hundreds of employees here supporting all of our patients around the world. So we're tracking this data and responding and, and making sure everything is moving in the right direction. The issue with adults is that their immune system does change, right? So once you're in your 30s or late 20s, your immune system does act differently than somebody who is a teenager. Now, we have collected enough data now where we, we, we believe we know how to actually take the blanket off of the adult immune system so we can see how it connects and operates. But sometimes for adults, we have to pay more attention. So what that means in short is that sometimes we have to do more testing for an adult uh, who's in their 30s rather than, say, a teenager. But we are very comfortable managing those cases. You mentioned there about your immune system kind of changing. Would that 
for example, obviously I've had my allergy since the age of five. Would the reaction still be as severe? I imagine it will be, but you imagine you, it's because you kind of mentioned there about your immune system changing. I'm just thinking, would, does the reaction get more severe as you get older or not? That's a that's exactly the right question to ask, right? And and so the interesting thing is, it's not that the reaction becomes uh, more aggressive or less aggressive. It actually changes. And I'll give you like an example, right? And so if you have a peanut allergy, peanut is, you know, your, your memory to peanut is there. Your immune cells remember. They're like, oh, that's peanut. However, usually around 30, when you go in and do a skin test for peanut, it, it's very small. The response is very low. In fact, some allergists are even tricked into thinking, oh, maybe it's gone away. And then if you actually give that person peanut, they may be able to consume a tiny, tiny amount of peanut. But on that second or third day of getting a little bit of peanut, the reaction is really severe. So what happened there, right? Like it used to be that if you got, you know, peanut when you were a kid, you got itchy yeah. right away, you may have some swelling. But now it took three days and a little bit of exposure to wake up your immune system. So we call that term, it's called senescence. It's basically a medical term for sleepiness. So it's almost like a sleepy immune system. And the problem with it is when you have a sleepy immune system, it can get aggravated by other things. So when you look at COVID, we saw a lot of patients, I'm not talking about our patients, but you know people who have food allergies, when they got COVID for the next 90, 120 days, their reactivity to foods became much, much worse. And so it's interesting that, you know, again, the adult immune system, because it acts sleepy sometimes, it's a bit more unpredictable. But again, I think with our system and the way we study it with our data science, uh, I, I think we have a pretty good wrap on it. I mean, I've never heard that. I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, when you mentioned there, obviously, like if your immune system does go sleepy, say, say for example, I consume some of it and it potentially has got nuts in it and my system's sleepy. Does that mean... I might not have reaction in that instance, but then if I do come in contact with nuts a few months later, a few days later, it'll be a lot worse. Hundred percent, you 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 nailed it. Yeah, it's it's really it works like that. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, you see it best in the people who develop food allergies as an adult, right? I mean, remember, two thirds of people who have food allergies will develop it after the age of eighteen. So what, and I'll kind of just walk you through an example if that's okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, if, if you look at peanuts, right? So they can say, you know, I, I ate peanuts when I was a kid, fine. Didn't really like them. You know, that's what they'll usually say. I was never a big fan of them. Mm. And so they would eat peanuts kind of, you know, once a year or something of that nature. And sometimes when you're 18 to 20 to 25 years of age, now you have your own control of your diet. So you, you may not even eat peanuts at all. And then what happens is your immune system has developed some memory and it said, do I want to be really tolerant to peanuts or do I want to remain in a position where I could develop a response? And then you have to start looking at the biosimilar proteins, right? So this could be that now this person who's in their 20s uh, is, a, is a health food person and they eat lots of almond flour, right? Or almond smoothies and things of this nature. Yeah. And what that does is the protein that's biosimilar between almond and peanut, because they're consuming so much almond and they're totally fine, but the peanut numbers will start to go up, right? And so now they're 28 years old and they have peanuts. They haven't had peanuts for a decade. They actually get a pretty significant amount of oral or stomach-based symptoms. So their stomach hurts. And then they say, I don't know what that was. I used to be able to eat peanuts. I must, must be something else. And then six months later, they eat a peanut butter sandwich. 
And then they have a really severe reaction. And if you talk to anybody who has food allergies, the yeah. story I just mentioned is really similar I've, to I've, what they've experienced. Yeah, I've, I've, I, one of the first other guests I actually had on the podcast was um, someone I actually works with. And yeah, she'd been eating peanuts her whole life. Then one Christmas, parents were like, do you want some peanuts? And she went into an, full-on anaphylaxis. And um, yeah, it's scary, isn't it? Like, I was going to say, with, with in regards to anaphylaxis, it's hard to say whether mine was a panic attack or not. But if the first anaphylaxis, obviously it's going to be bad and obviously very serious but does it get worse later on so if, if someone has anaphylaxis again for the second or third time is that anaphylaxis going to be twice as bad as the first time i mean the honest answer to your question is we don't have data on that right like yeah. no one has collected enough but i will tell you that understanding how the adult immune system operates it does have the ability to progress and we see this with other immune-based diseases right so if you look at conditions like celiac disease and other immune-based food disorder, certainly not food allergies, but similar, at least from the immune standpoint. If you look at uh, diseases like lupus or autoimmune type conditions, the older you get, the more ability the immune system has to operate in a bit of a strange way or a little more unpredictable way. So I'll tell you, unfortunately, you know, as you get older, you know, we continue to see clinical reactions. They will have food anaphylactic reactions. And it may take less, you know, amount of peanut to trigger a worse reaction. And that's something that has been at least reported. We've certainly seen it as, as mm. clinicians. I think long-term, this is why I so strongly believe that we have to put people into deep remission. That's the only way you keep this thing completely yeah. tucked away and that you don't have to worry about it again. Yeah. I mean, what's kind of next for you in regards to AI? Obviously, I imagine it'd be obviously collecting more data, but have you kind of got any exciting projects kind of up your sleeve as well. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Love it. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a technology company and, you know, essentially our next step here is we're, we're launching a patient app uh, here in, in, in this next year. We've already run it for about a thousand patients. Now we're expanding it to more patients where the app runs on your phone and it's all specific to you, right? So remember that initial blood work, all that data, it's going to be a full experience. So all you have to do is pretty much use your phone and it'll tell you what to do, when to do it. Uh, we give the patients the gummies and they know when to take them. And we will use this as a experiential based form of treatment where this is not so much of a headache. This should be simple. It should be fun and interesting. And our hope is we can then use that AI data to make sure that not only are patients following the plan, but we can incentivize them. And because, you know, one of the greatest things when you, when you finish, you know, a program or even forget about finishing, let's say you get to a point where you can eat a large amount of peanuts or different tree nuts. Yeah, you should go enjoy that. You know, you should go to new restaurants, try new things. But yeah. individuals who've been living with food allergies their whole life, they have you know, habits and those yeah. habits are really hard to break. So ultimately, we're looking to use our AI to really improve the patient experience. That's one thing. And then the second thing, we're actually using the AI to see when we can actually remove EpiPens in total from people, uh, which yeah. is really exciting if you think about it, right? If we can actually yeah. find a way to remove EpiPens uh, from ever having to be used again, that's our ultimate goal. Yeah. And I mean, have you got any kind of stories where the kind of reaction from the parents or the kids where they can eat nuts for the first time or have that first birthday cake? I mean, that must be incredible to kind of see. Oh, I tell you, every day, every day I, I get letters, uh, you know, the patients will post on on social media. Um, you know, we, we have an ongoing like uh, series on, on Instagram where, you know, it's like 
first cheeseburger, you know, first Thai food, you know, first chicken tikka masala, right? All the all the stuff that they've just never been able to have. Um, and you know, the look on, on the patients, on the kids, young adults face, uh, it's so cool. It's really, really remarkable. Yeah. It, it's, it really keeps us motivated to do what we do. Um, and ultimately, you know, we, we, we believe we're, we are the, you know, future of where this is all heading, uh, whether others build up AI systems, we encourage them to do it. I mean, this is the way we can actually fine tune medicine, but man, you know, whatever, whatever time we have on this planet, if we can enjoy it to a maximum, uh, this is this is one way to get there. Yeah. And do you ever fancy getting offices over in the UK so um, you get more UK patients? We're we're working on it. Uh, no, we're we're in a we're, we're definitely in, in in a position to to get there. Um, we're looking at 2024 to open up a few more sites. Uh, we already have two sites in California. One's in in San Diego, the very south of, of Southern California, and then our main headquarters is in Los Angeles. Um, our number one first goal is to get to the East Coast. So New York uh, City is, is our target, uh, the New York City area. Um, at least that would cut the flight time down uh, initially. Um, um, I was in the UK last year and I, I did have some conversations about how this would technically work and how we would have to open given the rules and regulations of the UK. So it is definitely high on our list uh, to find a way to get there. I was going to say that with the regulations in the UK, are they very different, obviously, to the US? And do you think it would be quite tricky to kind of get it kind of past the UK? You know, it's interesting. What I learned uh, there at uh, through some folks I know at King's College was it's really not an issue uh, from a regulatory standpoint. Like what we have uh, as far as the AI system and, and the treatment model is that's actually not a concern because we already have it submitted here to our FDA and that kind of carries over to to the UK. I think the difficult part is how to recruit physicians and and uh, other types of, of providers, if you will. And yeah. how do we you know how do we train them? How that does that work? And and what's the jurisdiction? But um, you know we're 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 definitely looking at the opportunity to to, to yeah. cross the pond. And if you're comfortable on obviously talking about this on the podcast, what is the the cost? Is that something you'd be open to kind of talk oh, yeah. about in terms of? Um, how much would it cost, for example, if, if I wanted to kind of come over, come over to the U.S. and start the treatment? So, you know, when I first started this program, um, I, I've always had the intention to make this as affordable as possible. I mean, my goal was to make this cost the, the same amount as orthodontics. You know, so if you want pretty teeth, you know, people will pay a little bit of money for one or two years and then they have great you know, great smile for the rest of their life. I know it sounds a bit yeah. silly, but I, I felt that was a reasonable model. Because our model, again, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of employees. We have lots of uh, space, activity, manufacturing, um, our own diagnostics laboratories and such, right? So this is a very expensive operation to run. We had to find the model that works well. As our population grows, we've been able to reduce cost. And so if you're in the U.S., the cost is is less because we have insurance programs that cover those costs. So most of our patients are paying roughly around, if you add the cost of uh, the treatment fees plus coming into the program, they're paying roughly around $7,000 per year to get treated. And that's only for one, two, or maybe three years at the most of what they're getting treated for. Yeah, um, And that's, I think, pretty fair. And then once they're done, the cost yeah. really just drops precipitously. For our folks who come from other countries, and again, we have significant number of patients from all over the world. Uh, it is a little more difficult because unfortunately there's no insurance that covers those other costs. Those individuals are roughly paying, you know, closer to about 
$12,000 a year, which I know is a lot. It's about $1,000 a month, but it is only for that brief period of time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a one year, two year type program. Um, and again, you know, we're very proud of the results we have of our patients who are international. It is, it is quite remarkable. I feel in so many ways they are, they are very dedicated to this program. They're dedicated to their, their own health. And because yeah. that dedication shows in the, in the success rates. Yeah, no, that's absolutely incredible. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure to have, have you on the podcast. Uh, honestly, I feel like I've learned so much. Obviously, I've had other doctors and professors, but I feel like I've, I've got so much away from, from this podcast and it's definitely going to bring so much value for the listeners. So yeah, thank you so much. If anyone wants to obviously follow your clinic or follow yourself, would you like to share your, your website on the podcast? Absolutely. It's foodallergyinstitute.com. Uh, you know, we'd be happy to talk to anyone who's interested in what we do. We have a full team of uh, counselors who can uh, pick up the phone or chat with you via text. Uh, Greg would have kind of learned more about our program. But ultimately, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing, uh, Daniel. This is all about advocacy and awareness. And, you know, it starts there. I think we have to empower both the young people and the adults, uh, you know, who have this condition. I'm very proud of the fact that we hire a lot of patients should say patients, not patients. We hire a lot of employees yeah. who have food allergies, uh, and we are really aware, and we want to make sure that you know the the global population.